Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Lott, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Before introducing our topic today, I would ask that if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as support the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, to please go to our website, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red donate button. We thank you in advance for your generosity. While the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, along with state-by-state battles over abortion, have focused our attention in recent months on beginning-of-life issues, we can't forget that there are very important end-of-life challenges facing us as well. One such end-of-life challenge concerns the criteria for determining brain death, a particularly important issue for vital organ donation. The Uniform Law Commission is set to propose changes to the Uniform Determination of Death Act, or UDDA, changes that raise both medical and ethical concerns about how brain death is, or will be, determined. Joining me today to speak about these possible changes to the UDDA and how they could affect us is Dr. Christopher Decock. Chris is a child neurologist who practices in Fargo, North Dakota. Chris Decock, welcome to Bioethics on Air. Thank you, Joe, for having me here. And unfortunately, if you want thoughtful discussion, you probably shouldn't have me on your show. But I'll try to do the best that I can. Well, that's a good way to lower the bar for our listeners right off the bat. Well, well done. So, Chris, with that in mind, as a, as a new guest on our podcast, can you please tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, your work experience, leading up to your present position? Sure. So I was born and raised in Fargo, North Dakota. And as a personal favor, please don't assume that the movie has anything to do with what Fargo, North Dakota is actually like. Although I can say, yeah, sure, don't you know, oof the fida, and stuff like that. We don't really talk like that in Fargo. Um, I went to uh, North Dakota State University for undergraduate, uh, where I got a zoology degree. And then ended up going to uh, St. Louis University School of Medicine for medical school. There, I fell in love with neuroanatomy and I met my wife. Um, The funny thing about that is when my in-laws heard that I was going to become a child neurologist on our first date, uh, they grilled me about their multiply handicapped son for about 45 minutes before we actually started my date. And so my wife figured it was either going to go really good or really bad. And we were married and have four kids, so it must have gone pretty well. So um, after medical school, I went to uh, Children's Mercy Hospital and Clinics in Kansas City for a child neurology residency, and then to Duke University for an epilepsy fellowship. After that, I moved back home and uh, started practice. And that's where you are today. Yep. I have to, uh, I just have to make a point about, or make a comment about the movie Fargo, because my wife, daughter, and I lived in South Dakota for a year. Um, and I remember there was one, I remember watching the movie Fargo. There's, there are scenes where just everything is gray. There's no demarcation between the sky or the ground. Everything is just gray. And there was one day, I think it was in November or December, where we were driving somewhere in South Dakota, and it was exactly that. It was just gray everywhere. And you couldn't tell where the ground ended and the sky began. And I said, I'm in the movie Fargo. So when you just said that, that, that triggered that thought in me. 
Well, that's about the only thing that's actually accurate. In the movie. <laughs> However, there is a plus side. In January, it gets so cold that you can't actually make clouds, so it ends up being nice and sunny. Nice and so sunny. when it's 20, you know, 30, 40 below zero, it's not cloudy. <laughs> The glass is always half full. Anyway, Chris, can you tell us about your current position at Essentia Health? So what are your responsibilities and what does a, uh, the, the staple question that I ask guests on the podcast, what does a typical day look like for you? Sure. So right now I'm the only child neurologist in Essentia Health. And I'm only one of three, maybe four, they might have hired a new guy in the whole state that does child neurology. And of those, I'm the only guy that's an epilepsy specialist. So typically I see kids with seizures, obviously, but headaches, you know, and a smattering of other things. Uh, In addition to my clinical work, and I do both hospital and clinic, um, 30% of my time, I work for the University of North Dakota, Uh, medical school where I'm the Mm -hmm. pediatric clerkship director. And then in addition to that, I'm the chair of our uh, bioethics committee, the physician chair um, for our organization's West Market. And so that's kept me pretty busy. And actually, that's sort of how I kind of got into this as well, because I figured I didn't have enough gray hair to be a bioethicist, so I figured I'd need some education. So right now I'm just completing a master's degree from the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. Yeah, and that's where we met at uh, one of the graduate seminars last November or December, one of the two. Mm -hmm. I remember it was about 50-something degrees when I left Philadelphia, and it was, I think, seven when I landed in Bismarck. So, And that was a warm day. (laughs) All right. So Chris, our, our our topic today is the Uniform Determination of Death Act or UDDA. We're, we're just going to use the acronym UDDA. I was wondering if you could give us a little background to it. When was the UDDA first drafted and how did it become, so to speak, the law of the land in the United States? So it first came about in the late 70s, early 80s. Now, prior to that, as early as 1957, uh, Pope Pius XII, in an address to the International Congress of Anesthesiologists, was questioned about this potential issue. And in 1968, at Harvard Medical School, they had the Harvard Ad Hoc Committee Mm -hmm. that talked about sort of the definition of an irreversible coma. And so this sort of you know, had some momentum so that by the time the late 70s and 80s rolled around, you know, people were seriously talking about brain death. And so in conjunction with the 1981 President's Commission that was entitled Defining Death, Medical, Legal, and Ethical Issues in the Determination of Death, the Uniform Law Commission proposed a Uniform Determination of Death Act. Now, the rationale behind the President's Commission was brought about from Germaine Griset and Joseph Boyle, stating that the brain is the master integrator of the body, 
And when the brain dies, the body very quickly thereafter disintegrates. And at that point, the data, you know, showed that and it seemed to be pretty consistent. And because of, you know, its foundation and objective reality and, you know, just the truth behind the statement, very quickly, you know, many states came on board. And to say that it's a law of the land, per se, might be a little bit of a misnomer because what happens is a uniform law commission, you know, comes up with general guidelines and then sort of proposes them to states and the vast majority of states. In fact, I think all the states, and I'm not sure all the territories, have adopted the uniform determination of death act to some form or another right and just so that we're all aware of that i, I just gonna, i just wanted to read it so we will have a, a working knowledge of this as we move forward so um the uniform determination of death act states quote an individual who has sustained either irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions or irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain including the brain stem is dead a determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards, unquote. So that is the UDDA, and we're going to be, ta- we're going to be uh, kind of dissecting that uh, definition a bit as we move forward, but just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page with that. And I'm going to put a, a link to the, uh, to the UDDA in the show notes so you can, so listeners, you can open it up and, you know, t- take a look at it as we're discussing it. So Chris, before getting into that dissection, so to speak, how does the, the UDDA impact the practice of medicine, particularly your work as a child neurologist? Well, so as a neurologist, typically when there's concerns about a patient being brain dead, they'll have a neurologist come in to determine whether or not the patient is dead Mm -hmm. or not. Now, luckily in pediatrics, that's relatively few and far between. Um, And, you know, what would happen is you'd have someone, usually I was following them in the hospital anyway, you know, you'd be worried about brain death. And so you'd talk to the family and say, you know, hey, we're concerned your child might be brain dead. Um, So, you know, we'd like to go forward and do, you know, the testing to determine if that's correct. Um, And there are very, you know, very strict set criteria, Mm -hmm. you know, put about out by the American Academy of Neurology and other organizations. And so, you know, you'd go to the bedside, you'd do the examination. Typically, I would do it in conjunction with, say, the PICU doc or a different physician. Um, And for kids, actually, what we would do is we would do it twice. So we would do it once. And then we'd wait 24 hours and then do it again. And typically I would change roles. So one time I would do the exam while someone was watching me. And the other time, you know, they would do the exam while I was watching them. And of course, you know, a lot of education needs to happen with the families. And, you know, typically... I don't necessarily encourage families to watch, but, you know, for transparency, you want to say, you know, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, you try to provide education while you're going through the examination. Yeah. I'm just wondering, Chris, do you do, um, have you done or do you do brain death determinations for adults as well? Uh, I do not. Um, However, in my role at Essentia Health, I've been, you know, watching some of the brain death determinations as we're going through making new hospital policies and stuff like that, you know, finding places that we can improve the policy mm-hmm. and stuff like that as well. Yeah. And in adults, they typically only do one exam. Okay. 
All right. Chris, not counting present efforts, which we're going to be talking about uh, as this interview moves forward, has the UDDA ever been revised since it first came out in the early 1980s? Well, individual states have had maybe little, you know, tweaks that they've done to the UDDA. So again, the UDDA was proposed to the states and the states might change that. So for example, in New Jersey, you can, you know, be declared or sorry, you can be determined to be dead, Mm -hmm. but you can, you know, through religious exemption, you know, demand that you not be declared dead, you know, and the difference between determining and declaring, you know, is important in this situation because, you know, if you're, you know, a very conservative Jew or, you know, Muslim or a lot of these Abrahamic faiths, um, you know, they're very much into the breath of God and the breath of life. And so they only, you know, feel that cardiopulmonary death is appropriate. And so, You know, they don't want to have anything to do with brain death. And because of, you know, primarily the Ashkenazi Jewish population, for example, in New Jersey, you know, they they have that sort of opt out, if you will. Um, Now, in 2008, the president's council under um, Dr. Edmund Pellegrino issued a white paper entitled Controversies in the Determination of Death because Mm -hmm. of the appearance of, you know, so-called chronic brain dead patients. Uh, But there was actually not a change made to the UDDA at that time. Interesting. How did you become interested in discussions concerning the UDDA? Well, the funny part is truth is stranger than fiction. So in North Dakota, it's cold and uh, we have um, <laughs> yes, you know, stuff that we need to do if we're not, you know, wanting to, uh, you know, ski or ice fish in the winter. And so a buddy of mine and I started a book club and one evening at book club, uh, one of our local commissioners who, you know, volunteers for the Uniform Law Commission as a commissioner, um, afterwards asked me what I knew about brain death. And I said, oh, well, let me tell you about it. And, you know, the thing is, the more I read, the more I found out that maybe I didn't quite know what I thought I knew and actually had quite an existential crisis at some point wondering, oh, my God, had I been, you know, had I been, for example, an accomplice to murder, you know, you know, were the criteria appropriate? And that's one of the things that Dr. Pellegrino had talked about in 2008, you know, that, you know, the criteria may not be that appropriate because we had all of these chronic brain dead patients. And, and so he asked if I would be willing to be an observer. And yeah, I was like, heck yeah, please sign me up. Yeah. I bet that's been an eye-opening experience. Yes, it has. Absolutely. All right. So you've mentioned the the Uniform Law Commission. So I wonder if we could give our, our listeners a little bit of background on that. So the UDDA and, and revising the UDDA is the purview of, as we mentioned, the Uniform Law Commission. Chris, what is the Uniform Law Commission and what does it do? Sure. So the Uniform Law Commission is basically representatives from every state. I believe they're mostly lawyers, if not all lawyers, um, who look at issues where uniformity could be helpful across the United States. So brain death being one of them, you know, Mm -hmm. because you'd want to be 
brain dead in one state and brain dead in the other state. And so what they do is they get lots of data, they get observers, they get experts, and then they propose, you know, model legislation, you know, that they think would be you know, something that could be adopted by multiple states as a whole, and then they send it back to the states, and then the states, through their legislative process, would decide whether or not to adopt this or to make any amendments or anything like that. And so since, you know, in the early 1980s, you know, 1980 was when the first UDDA came out, you know, since that came out and we have all of this uncertainty around brain death, it you know, made sense to go back to the Uniform Law Commission to see if changes need to, needed to be made. Okay. Now, you said that you are a observer, correct? correct. So what does that mean? And how, how are you personally involved in the present revision process? Sure. So there are commissioners, like I said, there are commissioners from every state, mm-hmm. and then there are observers that they bring in. So for example, my commissioner asked me because he knew I was a child neurologist and, you know, he's a lawyer. He doesn't know sort of the medical piece of it. Now, the Uniform Law Commission doesn't just deal with medical legal issues. They deal with all sorts of, you know, there's business law, you know, all of this stuff. And typically on a drafting committee, like what we're involved in now, you'll have maybe half a dozen or so observers. But on this committee, there's actually over a hundred observers. (laughs) And I would argue Uh. that that speaks to the importance of the issue. Now, the other thing is there's not a hundred observers at every meeting, right? Mm -hmm. And we meet, you know, twice a year and then maybe in the summer. Um, And there's not that many observers that come in person. So, for example, just last weekend we met in D.C. And I've made sure to go in person. So that way, if there are questions, I can ask them. But in the end, I don't get to vote on the legislation. So the commissioners decide. So what will happen is we're going to make a draft now, and then they're going to present it to the committee at large this summer and, you know, have a vote on how they should proceed, if they should change the language or leave the language alone. Yeah. So Chris, in light of what you just said, I'm just curious if there's 100 plus observers How much of an influence do you have over the process? Well, that's an interesting question. I look at it this way. I'm sort of a local expert, if you will. And for example, at our last meeting, there was only, you know, three, maybe four people that make the determination of death. And so I was able to speak to the process with some authority. And, and that's another reason why I go in person. If you're online, it's easy to be ignored. Right. But if you're right. in person, it's harder to ignore you. And the other thing is, you know, with the commissioners I'm working with, uh, um, our local commissioner, Commissioner Rodenbiker and uh, Commissioner Bopp from Indiana, um, we talk to them, you know, during it, you know, maybe, you know, I don't want to say we're passing notes in class per se, but it might be like, <laughs> hey, you know, please ask this, you know, you know, look at this. So we would sit down, we'd looked at the proposed drafts and say, okay, this language, you know, this needs, you know, that sort of thing. And so, you know, I, I'm not playing a big role per se, but I'm in the fight and right. it's great to be in the fight. Yeah. 
So, Chris, what's the actual process? Kind of walk us through, sure. um, and and particularly the process for revising the UDDA. Well, the process is similar for any model legislation they want to pass. So, for example, first of all, they meet for a couple of years to decide, should they even do this? Is this right. something where uniformity is even possible? And I miss that process completely because my commissioner um, wasn't on that committee. He, he was on specifically the drafting committee. So it's been a couple of years now um, that they've determined, you know, should we even talk about making a change to this law, right? And then once it goes that next step, then you have the drafting committee. And typically you're going to draft the legislation for about two years. Um, however, for us with, you know, so many observers and such an important issue, there's been quite a bit of disagreement. And so we're unusual because now we're going into our third year. And so once we're done, then we've got, you know, a draft of what we think would be appropriate. And there are cases where if it's inappropriate, commission, you know, commissioners may bow out and say, I'm not, I'm not going to put my name on this. Right. And then it goes to the committee at large with all the representatives from all the states. And then they sort of vote on, hey, you know, should we, should we promulgate this or should we just, you know, eject it? Right. And just to be clear, once again, for our for our listeners, the Uniform Law Commission doesn't make law. They, no, the, they, and, they make suggestions to states that make law. That make the law, right? All right, so let's get into the uh, let's get into the fun part now. Um, the actual proposed revisions to the UDDA. So, Chris, in a, a conversation with me prior to uh, recording this podcast. You said there are two main areas where UDDA revisions are being proposed. The first area concerns replacing the word irreversible with the word permanent. So thus the UDA, UDDA would no longer read, quote, irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions, but instead permanent cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions. In addition, it would no longer read irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem, but instead permanent cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. Your comments on this proposed change? Sure. So first of all, I misspoke. Um, there are three changes, okay. two that I'm not hot about, one that I'm totally <laughs> good with. So okay. the first change is to propose an opt-out. Okay. So if for some reason, you know, your religion doesn't, you know, buy into the concept of brain death, or if you're like me and you think that clinical criteria don't actually test for whole brain death, then you'd have that opt out. And that opt out would occur before the actual determination of death, as opposed to like in New Jersey, where it's the declaration of death. All right. So what, just to clarify, what does that mean? What would, what would be the opt out? What are you opting? What is, what would a person have the option to opt out from? You would be opting out from the determination of brain death. So a doctor wouldn't be able to do a brain death exam on you, essentially. Correct. Got it. Okay. But to be clear, it has to be the patient not the family. And so, you know, you'd have to be pretty clear, you know, Uncle, B Uncle Bob told me specifically that he didn't believe in brain death and does not want this determination to go forward. 
It sounds like this would be something you would want to put in writing if you wanted to do this. I would. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. So we got that first one. Right. And then the second change, you know, about irreversible and permanent, um, for cardiopulmonary death, that makes sense. So permanent basically means we're not going to resuscitate you, right? We could resuscitate you, but we're not going to. So someone who's a DNR, you can't really say it's irreversible mm-hmm. because technically you could resuscitate them. Right. right. And so that change makes sense, changing it to permanent. Yeah. Now, and that, that not, language is also used in DCD donations, the donation after cardiac death donations. I know there's some question about is, is, you know, is cardiopulmonary function irreversible or is it we're just not going to resuscitate the person? So that's another area where that distinction comes in as well, too. I just correct. want to point that out. Yep. That is go, correct. Go ahead. Sorry for interrupting. No, that's fine. But with regards to the brain, so first of all, I don't think it would actually say permanent cessation of all functions of the entire brain because the two proposals that are going forward, and we'll talk about that later, is one, leave the language alone, and two, change it from whole brain to being more specific. But we'll talk about that later. Um, With the brain, you can't resuscitate the brain. So... Hmm that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And the other thing is when brain cells die, they undergo a process called liquefactive necrosis. And basically what happens is brain cells die, they get liquefied, they get flushed out of the system by the cerebral spinal fluid. And so it is reversible or irreversible, right? Right. Once a neuron's dead, it's dead. It's not coming back. And so irreversible makes more sense for the brain. So I'm okay with permanent for cardiopulmonary because yes, I understand you know, you may or may not resuscitate someone, but for the brain, I mean, it's got to be irreversible. And actually in the criteria, it says you have to re- rule out reversible causes before you can even you know go forward and do the determination. And so I think changing that language for the brain would be an error. Okay. All right. So before getting into the, well, my notes say second area, but I guess maybe it's the third area focus. Um, I was wondering if you could speak about the hypothalamus. And I think the hypothalamus is going to be kind of important as we, as we move forward here a bit. So Chris, what is the hypothalamus? What does it do? And why is it important for the diagnosis and or the declaration of brain death? Sure. Well, the hypothalamus is really the crux of this debate. Because currently, the clinical criteria don't actually test for hypothalamic function. And what the hypothalamus does is it'll control blood pressure, temperature, control of the body's water, urine volume, control over hormones responsible for growth, metabolism, sexual development, and function, as well as sex drive and sleep. So, I mean, it does a lot. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, people are saying that the hypothalamus doesn't matter, right? They're saying, you know, so what if you have hypothalamic function? You know, these functions don't matter. But we had alluded to the idea of chronic brain-dead patients. So someone who's determined brain-dead by the current clinical criteria, yet these patients have persistent hypothalamic function. They go through puberty. They are able to gestate pregnancies. And I don't know about you, but that raises serious concerns if we're actually 
dealing with dead individuals here. And in fact, you know, someone said that, you know, those functions don't matter. Well, if I'm going to take their logic and say that the hypothalamus doesn't matter, even though it's a part of the brain that controls all of these things I'm talking about, if we use their logic, I know that a brain-dead man can ejaculate, and I know a brain-dead woman can just state a pregnancy. So using completely ordinary means, a dead man and a dead woman, by the current clinical criteria, could give rise to a living person. And I don't know about you, but that seems a little wrong-headed to me. Well, don't give people any ideas, because somebody's going to try it now. And unfortunately, you know, the people that say the hypothalamus doesn't matter also refer to these individuals like Jahai McMath, who lived for four years after right. the determination of death, as just ventilated corpses. And I find that really disturbing. And it's so disrespectful to the patient. I mean, in my mind, if we're going to say someone's dead, we need to be certain that they're dead. And omitting a part of the brain because it's inconvenient or because we don't think it's important to me is a really big issue. And that just points to, you know, the, the grip that the culture of death has on society that, that we don't care about these patients. Right. I was wondering, Chris, if you could tell us why do a number of, I assume these are physicians, why are they saying that the function of the hypothalamus, why does that not matter for a determination of brain death? Well, it's because most people think that, you know, the whole point of existence is to exercise your autonomy, to have okay. your will. And if you can't actually communicate with the world outside of you, though I would argue neuroendocrine functions would be sort of a, you know, communication with the outside world, then you don't really matter. And I think that's really what it is. It's just that dualist fallacy of that I'm a brain accidentally inhabiting a body, if that's correct philosophically, rather than I am a mind-body person like John Paul II spoke of. Right. The body matters. And I think that our culture doesn't think the body matters. If, if you can't make your will known, then you might as well be dead. Yeah. No, good, good answer to that. All right, so let's get into the, I guess now the third change um, to the UDDA, and that it, it's the, the, the hypothalamus, the function of the hypothalamus is going to be important for this. So this next change to the UDDA, or proposed change, I should say, to the UDDA, to the UDDA concerns removing the term, quote unquote, whole brain dead and replacing it with three criteria. And let me make sure I get the three criteria correct. It's permanent coma, lack of respiration, and absent brainstem reflex. Your comments, Chris, on this proposed change. All right. So for clarity purpose, let's just say, so there's going to be two proposals brought to the committee at large okay. because there hasn't been a consensus. And, you know, they kind of want to know where do people kind of want to go with this. So the first proposal would be leave it alone, right? Leave the language alone. Don't mess with it because to me, it speaks the truth. We're talking about whole brain death mm -hmm. and that's how, you know, they, they really were trying to say your brain is objectively dead, right? right? 
Now, the second proposal, and that wording might not be 100% correct. I haven't, I don't have the latest draft to look at as to what that wording would be. But you'll notice that they don't talk about the hypothalamus or, you know, what's what's referred to as neuroendocrine function. So those are, mm-hmm. you know, what the functions of the hypothalamus are. So they don't mention that at all. And the whole reason that that's coming about is the current clinical criteria don't test for neuroendocrine function. And so what's what that second proposal is, is basically rather than, you know, changing the clinical criteria to meet the current definition, which I think is philosophically sound, we're going to change the definition to meet the clinical criteria. Can you repeat and, that? Because I think that that's such a key point. Can you can you just repeat what absolutely. you just said? Please, please do. Just I want to make sure right. that everybody is clear on this. Yeah, no, and 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 trust me, you're going to get sick of me talking about inadequate <laughs> clinical criteria. But basically, what the second proposal is looking at is we want to change the definition of death to meet the current clinical criteria. So change not, the so change the legal definition of death to meet the current clinical criteria. Correct, which are mm-hmm. inadequate, which don't test for whole brain death. Let's be clear. Yeah, rather than out, rather than actually saying, look. You need to make better criteria. And I mean, this would be like me, you know, going to a patient with multiple sclerosis and saying, you know, I've got this test and it's not very good at detecting multiple sclerosis. So rather than changing the test, let's change the definition of multiple sclerosis to make the test make sense. Well, that's asinine, you know? Medicine has to be based in objective reality, and you can't just change definitions, you know? And the other thing about this is, why are we looking to a consensus to determine when death occurs, right? Death is a biological reality. And if we were to go with this second proposal that I would say, you know, is changed in the definition to meet the current clinical criteria, we're basically saying, well, they're dead enough and that's good enough. So dead enough is good enough. Therefore, now you're dead legally. And that's huge. We are changing from what is an objective standard. Your brain is dead when your brain is dead to now a subjective standard, we think your brain is dead enough and that's good enough. So for example, you know, in the past, I remember hearing there were only two absolutes in life, death and taxes. Now I guess there's only going to be one absolute in life and that'll just be taxes. So I don't know about you, that's very concerning to me. And the problem is, you know, I understand you want to protect the medical community but you don't change the definition to meet criteria that are inadequate. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, making someone legally dead because you think they're dead enough is a horrible idea because dead enough is never good enough. Right. It sounds like a title for an essay right there. It may or may not be. (laughs) And it may or may not be an essay that I'm involved with. Chris, I'm wondering, and, and this, this, you know, what you say really, you know, obviously it raises a lot of concerns, but I'm wondering 
is the purpose of proposals to revise the UDDA, as you just as you just talked about, is the purpose of that to increase the number of organs that are available for transplant? I don't really think it is. I mean, obviously on the surface, you're like, oh yeah, it must be some horrid thing, you know, dealing with that. But I don't really think it is because, you know, very little would actually change at the bedside, right? We would basically just be legally sanctioning these inadequate criteria, which are already going on, right? So you're not actually going to get any more organ donors. Mm -hmm. Now, the people that don't know will automatically be shuffled into the system, right? And so we would be inadequately testing for brain death, but we're already inadequately testing for brain death, you know? So I don't think it would actually change the number of vital organs. However, so some objections were raised um, when my commissioner and I brought up the fact that, hey, these clinical criteria are inadequate. We should, you know, we should be more certain about it. And yes, if we were more certain, there would probably be less organ donors out there. But honestly, who cares? I mean, it's not about what you can get out of the patient. It's about the patient themselves. And let's be honest. We wouldn't be talking about a revision of the Uniform Determination of Death Act if people weren't concerned about this issue, mm. right? I mean, obviously, people are concerned. And in the end, I think it would be a grave error, not not only because now we're you know gerrymandering the definition of death to meet inadequate clinical criteria, but you're going to destroy public trust, you mm. know? And in the long run... If you're actually more certain and you have less organs available, in the long run, people are going to have more trust, and then you're ultimately going to get more organs. But again, the organs are not the issue here. The issue is, are you dead or not? And I don't think this is a big conspiracy to try and get more organs because, you know, they're already doing inadequate criteria. Right. Yeah. And just to be just to clarify, I, I want to make sure everybody knows we're not we're not arguing against organ donation. I know some people could hear our hear what we're talking about and say, oh, you guys are arguing against vital organ donation. We're not. We're talking about the criteria used to to determine brain death. Correct. And and I will say though, you know, I am listed as an organ donor, but with all of this going on, I'm I'm thinking about not being an organ donor. And um and it's not because organ donation is not a good thing. If I'm really dead you know, if I'm dead sure I'm dead, please take my vital organs. I mean, I'm fat, so nobody wants them, but, you know, <laughs> if they were any good to someone, for sure. But I don't want someone killing me if I'm not actually dead to get my organs. Yeah. I was going to ask you oh, – go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to turn. Well, and then that's the real issue too, right? So, you know, to quote Miracle Max from The Princess Bride – um, he said, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And that's the thing that's been bucking me about this whole process. You know, I'm a physician. I'm here to take care of patients. People are indifferent. I mean, to me, we're not certain. So why would we not become more certain? You know, it's right. this indifference that just blows my mind. Nobody really seems to be caring about the patients. And... Now, some people argue, they're like, look, you know, we, we want to do this because, you know, if, you know, if we kept these slightly alive patients, you know, they could never, they, they, they would have to suffer for years. 
Well, that's not true. There are many, you know, if I were in someone's shoes like that, I would ask my wife to turn off the vent. Right. And that would, in, you know, very many cases is completely morally acceptable. You know, obviously I want to still be fed because that's not a medical treatment, although medicine at large says it is a medical treatment. But, you know, if I am so profoundly disabled that I'm not going to be able to, you know, be around, I would I would like people to, you know, let me go. And that's the thing. There's a huge difference between killing and letting die. Right. And some of the, um, you know, physician philosophers on this say there isn't a difference. And that's a troubling thing as well. So, you know, really, it's if these chronic brain dead patients are actually alive, why is nobody caring about them? You know, why is the concern organs? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a great thing to do if you're actually dead. But killing people to get their organs is never right. right. As you well know, you can't use a bad means to get to a good end. Very true. Chris, I'm very glad you brought up the, the issue about um, maybe rethinking organ donation. Because in, in conversations with people, I've suggested that to people. Um, they have concerns. They're a little bit different concerns that you're expressing here. But I said to them, you know, if you're really concerned about these issues, then simply say, you know, I'm not going to be an organ donor. And, you know, kind of a practical thing for people uh, or a practical response, maybe, maybe not the greatest response, but it, it is a response that people could have to this issue. I'm, I'm wondering either that or other ways that other practical ways that these revisions to the UDDA might affect the everyday person. I know you've talked about some of them already, but are there any other practical applications of these uh, proposed revisions that people should keep in mind? Well, and and I do want to mention a little bit more about the organ donation before, sure. you know, we leave that issue. Organ donation is a gift. Mm -hmm. And it's a gift that's got to be freely given. And it's a wonderful thing if you can do it. And I'll be honest, if I'm really dead, please take my organs. You know, I'm not using them. You know, knock yourself out. But Again, we can't be, you know, reducing patients' value, their dignity to whether or not we can get organs out of them. Right. And that's fundamentally what we need to be mostly concerned about, right? It's the patient in front of us. It's the actual act that we're doing. And so practically speaking, I agree. If you are concerned about it, you know, don't put your loved ones through that, you know, it's a gift. And, and if you're certain and you're okay with it, you know, let your loved ones know and become an organ donor. And like I said, for me, this big issue is we're trying to change the definition of death. We're trying to change it from a biological reality to a consensus statement. And that's very troubling to me. And so practically, I mean, I think people just need to be aware because ultimately if an opt-out is there, I guarantee you I'm going to have it in my will. I mm -hmm. want to be opt-out because I don't believe that these inadequate clinical criteria actually determine if I'm brain dead. And therefore, 
I do not want to be determined brain dead, and I don't want you taking my vital organs because that would be killing me. I think I know the answer to this next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So, Chris, what do you think should be done with regard to the UDDA? Should we maintain it as is? Should we modify it? Or as some might say, we should, should we scrap it? Well, so for sure, we need that opt-out in there. People don't believe in brain death, and they have very good reasons for it. And nobody should be forced to, you know, be declared dead if they're not dead. Now, I think that if they were really dead, you know, really brain dead, if we had appropriate clinical criteria, which, by the way, would not be difficult to achieve, they still need to have that ability to opt out. So I think for sure we need to be changing that, you know, we need to bring that to the states for sure and say, look. These are, you know, these are real issues. These are not just fringe groups. These are not minorities. And it, and it, and it very well may be the minority, but it doesn't matter if you're a minority. You still have equal dignity. You know, consensus doesn't determine ethics, right? You have to give them that option. Now, the other thing is, I would say leave the language alone because right now there's two proposals. Leave the language alone or change the definition of death. So if I have two picks, I'm going to say leave the language alone. Now, that worries me a little bit because if you notice in the language, they said the whole brain is dead, including the brainstem. Mm -hmm. Well, the concern for that is people would have left out the brainstem, right? And so that's why they said we need to include the brainstem because, you know, we don't trust people to do the right thing, I guess. Um, our proposal was to, you know, add neuroendocrine function. Or if you really want a list... You could say, you know, you know, irreversible coma, absence breathing, no or neuroendocrine function, and no brainstem reflexes, and then you'd be certain. You'd be good. But that's not yeah. on the table at this time. I mean, truthfully, what needs to happen is the organizations need to change the clinical criteria to actually ref reflect objective reality, and. By leaving the language alone, I mean, that's that's the best option at this point. Right. Um, people could still try to rewrite neuroanatomy and say that the hypothalamus isn't a part of the brain and therefore whole brain death would not include the hypothalamus anyway. So that could happen as well. But, you know, the language isn't perfect, you know, whole brain death, you know, and that's what a lot of people have said. Well, what does that actually mean? You know, there's no way you can be certain that every single neuron is dead. And that, and that's true, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can be certain up to a point. And the language of whole brain death is one that's rooted in objective reality, right? It says, when your brain is dead, your brain is dead. And the clinical criteria need to do that. So, in general, the actual language as it is, is, is totally acceptable, at least for me. And like I said, you know, trust issues would, I would love to say, yeah, and make sure you're testing the hypothalamus. But of those two options, I'm afraid option one is the only acceptable one. Yeah. No, I hear you. Last sort of, uh, big question here. Um, and, and we know this at the NCBC because we, we hear the debates. And in fact, we talk amongst ourselves about it as well. So th this issue of brain death is an ongoing and oftentimes very heated debate. And 
you know, even maybe apart from the UDDA, what as a child neurologist, what, if anything, do you, would you say we can do to assure with moral certitude that when a person is determined to be brain dead, that he or she is actually dead? Well, as you know, we can never have absolute certitude. So I just mm -hmm. want to get that out there, right? And just because you have don't have absolute certitude does not mean you can act. Asking for absolute certitude is a recipe for not acting. Mm -hmm. But you can have, you know, as you know, what's referred to as prudential certitude. You know, given the data that we have, we believe that this is the actual you know, truth of the matter, if you will, if I can use that term. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think John Paul II used moral certitude to, to explain the same thing. Yeah. Right. And so, and so right now we clearly don't have certitude, right? And again, if I were dictator of the world, I would say <laughs> you're going to change the clinical criteria to ref reflect the objective reality because you know, we're talking about very vulnerable, ill patients. And to say that dead enough is good enough has never been acceptable. I mean, that's akin to what the Nazis said of life unworthy of life. Mm -hmm. We can't go down that pathway. Now, if we actually tested for whole brain death and we still had chronic brain dead patients around, then I would say, look, I'm probably wrong. Maybe there really isn't such a thing as brain death. Maybe the brain isn't the master integrator. And in fact, some people have said, well, brain death can't exist because of these chronic brain dead patients. But, but that's a premature assumption because we're not actually testing for whole brain death. So if we tested for whole brain death and we actually had chronic brain dead patients, and I would say, look, I was wrong. You know, these patients were actually alive. And that's a possibility, but I don't think it's a very likely one. Because when we look at the chronic brain dead patients, what separates them from the patients that die very quickly after being declared brain death is those neuroendocrine functions, those functions of the hypothalamus. And so if we were to actually test for whole brain death, I think we would see the number of chronic brain dead patients go down. And I think that would show people in general, look, we've heard you, we care, we care about these vulnerable patients, and we are as sure as we can be. And I think that's what prudential certitude is. You know, you're taking that step. You're not just being sure, you're being dead sure, you know, pardon the pun. That's a bad pun, Chris. That's really bad. So, but I mean, in the end, we have to be sure. And if we're not sure, then we need to back off. And in fact, you know, Dr. Pellegrino in 2008 in that controversies and determination of death quoted Hans Joseph and he said in areas of uncertainty the only choice now this isn't a direct quote this is from memory is to bend over backwards in favor of life and right now that's not what that second proposal is right. that's saying well you're dead enough and that's good enough yeah. and so these patients are vulnerable we need to take care of them and we need to understand that the current clinical criteria 
from these organizations is inadequate. And we need to change those criteria in order to increase certitude. And changing the definition is not an option. We can't let that happen. I think you may have mentioned this, but uh, mentioned this earlier. But just really quickly, so we're um, we're recording this interview on February seventeenth of twenty twenty three. What's the process that the Uniform Law Commission is going to be following when, uh, in terms of revisions or not revisions of the UDDA? Just so that our listeners will kind of have a time frame in mind. Sure. So there will be revisions to the UDDA. That ship has already sailed. Okay. Now. Whether or not the revisions will be good or bad, that ship has not sailed. So this summer in Hawaii, the um, committee's meeting as, you know, at large, all of the commissioners are meeting. The whole Uniform Law Commission is meeting. Correct. Got it. Yep. All the members, not just our drafting committee. Got it. And then the drafting committee, and it's only commissioners, observers are not you know, it's not that we're not welcome. We're not allowed to speak because it's at commissioners. I can observe, you know, from the balcony, but I can't actually be, you know, on the floor addressing the other commissioners because I don't have a vote. But they're going to propose, leave the language alone and have the opt out and some other very good changes that we've brought about to this proposed law or change the definition of death to meet the current clinical criteria and have these opt-outs. And I'll be honest, a lot of people are like, look, since there's an opt-out, we can do whatever we want with the definition. Well, if we accept that, then we've won the battle and lost the war. You know, medicine has to be based on objective reality. And if it's not, then, you know, where where are we going to go? I mean, we're no better than witch doctors then. And, and I would be honest, witch doctors are probably more honest because they don't claim to be based on objective reason. <laughs> oh, Chris, on that note, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? So I would like to leave you guys with a riddle that Abraham Lincoln was quite fond of. So he stated, if you say a dog's tail is a leg, how many legs does a dog have? Are you so, asking me that question? I am asking you that question, Joe. Well, the answer is four. Right. But some people would say five, right? But it's not five, right? It doesn't matter if we call a tail a leg. A tail is still a tail. In the same way, these patients that are mostly dead will never be all dead because we say they're all dead, right? Medicine has to be based in objective reality. And death is such a reality. Death is not a consensus. It has never been a consensus. You know, you're not dead just because someone decides that you're dead. So what we really need to be making sure that we let our folks know that such a change, changing the definition of death to meet the clinical criteria, rather than changing the criteria to meet a definition of death that is rooted in objective reality, that's where this battle is. And I use the term battle because, let's be honest, how much has language been changed when we look at the, you know, the whole pro-life movement with birth? Well, you know, life doesn't begin at conception, it begins at birth. And by the way, I'm obviously not saying that I believe life begins at conception, but now we're saying, well, death doesn't really occur when your brain is dead, it only occurs when it's dead enough. So just remember, in the end, if you call a dog's tail a leg, it doesn't have five legs. It has four legs and a tail.
because that's what objective reality tells us. Chris, we could apply that to so many different things facing us in the healthcare world and many other podcasts to follow. So, but anyway, Dr. Christopher- that's why I wanted to end with that because (laughs) it's not just applicable here. It's applicable in all sorts of areas. Oh, absolutely. Dr. Christopher Decock, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics on Air. All right. Thank you very much. And I really appreciate the opportunity. And if you have any more questions, I'd always be happy to come in and talk with you again. Very good. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at J. Z-A-L-O-T at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the blogs and podcast button on the main page and then click bioethics on air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website again, ncbcenter.org and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.